Hello, and welcome to The Gospel Life. I'm Neil Tu, author of the book, The Gospel Life, and host of this podcast. In my 20s, I spent three years living among the monks. I learned from them an incredibly rich and fruitful way to pray called Lexio Divina, which is Latin for sacred reading. Lexio Divina is a Christian spiritual practice that has been around for over a thousand years. It's a way of entering into the presence of God who speaks in his word, listening to that word, meditating on it, retaining it, and responding in prayer to God who has just spoken to us. I follow this practice every day, and in this podcast, I share with you its fruits. I hope it blesses you. Episode 11, The King with the Hidden Crown. The power of imperial Rome must have been an awesome thing. In today's gospel passage, we see that power stand in the presence of a power even greater, a power so great that even in its meekest expression, Rome appears as its subject. This Sunday marks the end of the liturgical year in the Catholic Church. The beginning of a new year, heralded by Advent, is around the corner. This means, this Sunday, we celebrate the Feast of Christ the King. Our passage for the day is taken from John chapter 18, verse 33 to 37. It's the story of the pivotal encounter between Pilate, the governor of the Roman province of Judea, and Jesus. The previous night, Jesus had come with soldiers and guards from the high priest's retinue. They arrested Jesus. They brought him before the former high priest, Annas, then to the current high priest, Caiaphas. Each, in turn, sent Jesus on to a higher authority to be judged. Thus, Jesus is sent before Pontius Pilate, the governor of the region. Pilate is known to secular history. He served under Emperor Tiberius from the year 26 to 37 AD. He now stands before Jesus, invested with all the power of the Roman state. We see today in John's Gospel account the, this encounter between Jesus and Pilate. The text doesn't give us specific details as to the charge the high priests have levied against Jesus. It's only clear that he merits, in their view, the penalty of death. Only the Roman state had the power to put someone to death. Thus it was that the high priest sent Jesus to be judged by Pilate, the Roman governor. This much we understand from the text. Now Pilate enters the scene. We can imagine that he is puzzled. The high priests have brought before him early on a Friday morning a taciturn and peaceful-looking man who has clearly been beaten and roughed up by the guards the night before. This man, they say, deserves death. Pilate inquires. He attempts to understand. We don't know just how earnest his inquiries are. Perhaps he was bored. Perhaps he was annoyed that he had to be dealing with a case like this early in the morning. Perhaps he had heard stories about Jesus and was intrigued. We don't know. We have only the brief dialogue that John reports, supported by the other gospel accounts. The scene takes place in the Praetorium. The word Praetorium comes from Praetor, for leader. Praetor was the title given to the ranking civil servant in the Roman Republic. Thus, Praetorium is a grand hall where a general or governor formally received those who were under his jurisdiction. Pilate enters the grand room, probably with columns and soldiers stationed at the doors and outside. It is a setting of strength 
imperial might. He gathers himself, a man in command of himself, in command of his emotions and of others. He summons Jesus. Jesus enters. He had been held in custody all night. He had been struck at least a few times by belligerent guards. Now he stands before Pilate, calm, collected, in full composure, serene. Not the kind of wrongdoer Pilate expected to see. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asks, repeating a claim the high priests must have levied against Jesus. Jesus stands calmly before the man who holds his human fate in his hands. He doesn't give a direct answer. Do you say this on your own, or have others told you about me? Jesus asks. Note that Jesus' response here seeks to engage Pilate personally in the matter at hand. Does Pilate want to know himself whether Jesus is king of the Jews, or is he just parroting a charge? Pilate deflects. He wants no personal engagement in this matter. He just wants to do his job, it seems, and be done with it. He persists in an official line of questioning, keeping his personal feelings out of it. I am not a Jew, am I? Pilate says. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Sensing now that Pilate is unwilling to answer a direct question, Jesus returns to Pilate's first question. Are you the king of the Jews? And now he provides a layer of insight into this inquiry. In so many words, he says, I am a king, but the kingdom over which I reign is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, those who follow me would fight to keep me from being handed over to my adversaries. But as it is, I am a king whose reign is not of this world. Now imagine the interior response Pilate must have felt. It's Friday morning. First thing, the high priests of the Jewish faith bring this man before him. They declare him worthy of death. The matter is urgent, they say. Few details are given. Pilate is a man of power and authority. He could release this man at a word, or he could send him just as swiftly to his death. If you were Pilate, you would expect the prisoner before you to know when he is in the presence of a superior, of a potential benefactor or liberator or executioner. But this man, Jesus, is different. He stands there, calm and regal, as though he were an emperor. He is, yet he is humble and self-effacing, as though he were a slave. Such a strange set of traits. He meets the gaze of Pilate with penetrating but soft eyes. He speaks as though it is he who is the ranking officer in the room. He speaks of a kingdom, his kingdom. But he asserts no need to exercise the authority he seems to possess. He says his kingdom is not of this world. Thus one presumes his kingdom is of some other world, some other place. Pilate takes the cue. So you are a king, he says. Jesus here resists the term, refuses to engage in a discussion that is premised on the kind of king Pilate is imagining. You say I am a king, Jesus responds, in effect. But what you mean and understand by king, I am not. And now Jesus delivers the full force of his argument to an uncomprehending Roman potentate. Quote, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world, Jesus says, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth hears my voice. 
That's John 18, verse 37. Consider this response. It is at once full of a magisterial tone and authority. A man with such confidence in his mission, and yet with a total absence of the need to assert power. Have you ever met a person who could combine these two traits? Let's unpack this response from Jesus. For this I was born, he says. Jesus is a man who knows his mission. He knows why he was born. He stands at a moment which to a lesser man would have have appeared as the nadir of his mission, the moment of its naked failure. He is caught, trapped, bounded, shackled before a power he could not overcome. But to Jesus, this moment was his hour. Through the eye of this needle, he saw the dawning of a light he came to cast upon the earth. For this I came into the world, he says. Pause. Let me repeat that. For this I came into the world. Jesus stands, robed before Pilate, bruised in cheek, humiliated before the soldiers, unaccompanied by friends and supporters, and he declares that he entered of his own volition into this world to execute a purpose that even now seems to be unfolding, even now, despite all the contrary surface impressions. What purpose? To marturio to the truth, to be a witness to the truth of things. The verb in the original Greek is marturio, to bear witness, from which we get the term martyr. Jesus is saying, I stepped of my own volition into human existence in order to bear witness, to be a martyr to the truth of things. That witness requires that I pass through this captivity, vulnerability, betrayal, and false condemnation. But pass through it, I shall. Bear witness to the truth, I will. Somehow, what looks to us like a total failure looks to Jesus like the stage upon which his master class will be unveiled. Here Pilate shuts down the dialogue. What is truth, he mutters, then leaves the room. What is truth is a kind of rhetorical question Pilate is comfortable dropping, as though truth is not a thing to be bothered with, not a thing that can be known, can't be delivered upon a platter, observed, dissected, mastered, or made the source of profit. Thus it is not an object of concern for him. I disagree. What is truth is precisely the question I want to ask. What does it mean that Jesus was born to bear witness to the truth? What does it mean that he came to earth to bear witness to the truth? How can we ascend to an understanding of the truth? When I asked this question in prayer, I confess, I first felt myself before a kind of impasse. What do I know about the highest truth? But then the question led me to another assertion of Jesus, uttered to his disciples in the discourse following the Last Supper, John chapter 16. I have much more to tell you, Jesus says to them. He says he is going away, that he will leave them. He is preparing them for the trouble they will encounter in the days, months, and years ahead. But you cannot bear it now, he continues. But when he comes, the Spirit of truth, he will lead you into the fullness of truth. That's John chapter 16, verse 13. When he comes, I'm repeating, the Spirit of truth, he will lead you into the fullness of truth. 
This statement is something we either believe and then can confirm in our own experience, and it is a source of joy, the promise of a guide, a continuation on earth of the kind of presence Jesus conveyed to his disciples. Or it occasions a shrug. We hear it. We say a little like Pilate, hmm, not sure I buy that. Not sure I want to be bothered with that. Might disrupt my schedule. Well, I'm in the former camp because I've seen enough in my day to know that it is true. The spirit of truth has been sent by Jesus to lead us into the fullness of truth. I have discovered with the passing of time, my time and my study of scripture and history, that it is true. This word of Jesus says so much, says it so completely, so simply. He identifies the truth of things with the Holy Spirit. The spirit of truth, he says. He identifies truth with the Holy Spirit in a way similar to what he has said of himself elsewhere. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6. But now Jesus envisions a day when he will no longer be on earth, and in his absence there will be another presence given to guide his disciples, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. That Spirit will continue on earth the role Jesus once played leading his disciples, teaching them, enlightening them, correcting them, directing them toward an ever greater grasp of truth. Here, we need to depart from the text of John's Gospel, for John merely gives the promise of the Holy Spirit. To see more on the realization of this promise, we need to turn to Acts 2. There we witness a dawning, a sunrise of sort. We see the first radical descent in power of the Holy Spirit, transforming the disciples from a timid, reluctant, slow to recognize the risen Christ bunch a bunch who regularly locked the door to the room where they gathered for fear of the authorities, into an organized, fearless, outspoken, authoritative group of inspiring communicators, master marketers of a new and unfamiliar message. We then need to read through the rest of the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles of the New Testament. If we do so, we will sense that the guiding presence of Jesus did not leave the disciples after his death. Somehow his inspiration and his action continued among them made them bolder, humbler, fearless, earnest in love, willing to lay down their lives, which many of the leading members of the early church did. All of this is a story for another day. The point here is that the Holy Spirit is the answer to Pilate's question, what is truth? What is truth is answered when the heart seeks the living presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who proceeds from the Father through the Son. We close with a prayer. O Holy Spirit, you who proceed from the Father, I am only part of the way forth on my journey. Lead me into the fullness of truth, the truth of my existence, which is a lived communion with the Father and the Son in you, the Spirit. Let me know this truth with all my heart, that I might embrace it with all my mind, all my soul, all my strength. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Gospel Life. I hope this podcast encourages you to practice Lectio Divina in your own life. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe to this channel or follow it. You might also want to purchase a copy of the book which inspired this podcast and where I explain a method of Lectio Divina that can work for laypeople. To learn more, please visit thegospellife.net. Thank you very much.